preparing for, I cannot remember exactly the part of that sermon prompted this, but I began to exercise my mind and heart about this matter of conflict and resolving conflict and worship. And then again this week, two weeks later, I began to think I'd include that in this morning's sermon, but it didn't seem to fit. And as you saw, I had too much to say already. And so that began to grow into a separate sermon this week, and I allowed it, even after printing the bulletin, uh, to take the place of what would ordinarily be our evening meditation. The title of this sermon ought to be, Leave Your Gift at the Altar. And the text will be Matthew 5, verse 21 and following. Now, you'll remember that we began our series on peacemaking in the morning, largely in this text. And we emphasize in particular going to your brother if there's something between you. Now I want to really struggle with you a bit on that theme of leaving your gift and going. So I'll begin at verse 21, read through verse 26. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of God. Amen. Here's what I want to take up this evening. What does one do? when he's engaged in some conflict with a brother or sister. It is not resolved. And Sunday comes. It's time to go with the people of God and worship. But you either haven't made much headway or any headway, you've perhaps just begun to think about how to go about resolving a conflict with the brother. So it's there, and it's time to go to church. What do you do? It seems that that is a very practical question, a very nitty-gritty, real-world question. Because, especially now, we can think of this as we've talked about the complexities and the difficulty of really gaining reconciliation with a brother or sister the last few weeks, you'll recognize that those don't happen Monday to Saturday, necessarily. And there's this word of our Lord. If you're offering your gift at the altar, it's not worship, 
and there remember your brother has something against you, leave. Leave your gift there before the altar. Go first, be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. So I ask the question again, what does one do? And here she realizes there's something unresolved between him and a brother, a sister. And it's time to go to church. Now, the principle behind Matthew chapter 5, the principle as you and I have seen it before, that runs the thread through the scripture. What Jesus is emphasizing is that you cannot assume that God will be pleased with your fellowship, your presence, your praise. If you and another one of his children are at odds, you should not assume that. And you should take pains to make sure that as you come seeking to be right with God, that you're also right with others of his children, others of his family. That's found in Amos and many of the other prophets where God says, look, I can't stand your feasts. And uh, the reason is because he wants justice to be present among them. He's talking about their relations with one another. And that's the prerequisite to his enjoying their fellowship with him. It's found in things like the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And we saw how there's this connection between our expecting God's forgiveness and our giving it to others. These are joined in some way. It's found in various places in the letters to the Corinthians who, as we've seen in reading those letters, the congregation that is full of fighting each other. And Paul says in one place, when you sin against your brother and wound their conscience, which is weak, you sin against Christ. So those, those are the things, that's the, the thread that lies behind this word of our Lord in Matthew chapter 5 about leaving your gift at the altar. But here's the problem. <clears throat> the fact of the matter is, there are times when Sunday rolls around. It's altar time, if you will. Gift-giving time. Worship. It's time for worship. God calls his people. And it's not yet resolved. What does one do? Now, the bigger problem than this one, as real a problem as this is, a bigger problem would be for you and me to think nothing of it, to just go on as if there was no conflict between your coming to the Lord and your avoiding someone else. And that would be the bigger problem. That's the problem that Paul lands on squarely. Again, the first epistle to the Corinthians. They talk about their meetings doing more harm than good. They come together and there's expressions of disunity among them. And that's what they were doing. They were going on as if there was no relationship between their getting along with each other and with the Lord. Now, that would be a bigger problem. But I'm assuming tonight that I'm speaking to those who are sensitive to this issue. And you perhaps have had your sensitivity raised in the course of this series on peacemaking. And so our problem tonight is, what does one do? There's unresolved conflict, and Sunday comes. Well, let's take our time this evening this way. Let's 
talk about uh, solutions that aren't really solutions, and then let's talk about a multifaceted way of dealing with just that problem. Of course, the solution that's not a solution is to say, well, I shouldn't go to worship at all. I've got something against a brother, and so I guess that just excuses me from worship. I don't need to worry about the, the Sabbath coming up. God gives me a pass. Well, I hope you recognize right away, that's, that's no solution. How do we begin every worship service? How do we begin it? What's the very first thing? You stand on your feet and you hear what? What do you hear? A call to worship, right? And what's that? What, that's reminding us that we're welcome, and, and that's wonderful. It's reminding us that God wants us to feel welcome in His presence, but it's doing more than that, isn't it? It's saying, I'm your God. You're my people. This is where you belong. I want you to worship me. I'm calling you to worship. So worship is an option. It's not a solution to say, I just, I just pick a pass on worship. I just sit out. That is wrong. It's wrong to say to the Lord, I'll not come. When you've gathered your people and they are worshiping on the day you've appointed for worship, it's a sin. It's a failing in our part. It's a desperate situation. That would be a desperate measure to take. Uh, sometimes we're tempted, I think, to sort of divide the question. Say, well, I'll come to worship, but if they're having the Lord's Supper, I won't take that. I won't take the Lord's Supper because I have an unresolved issue with a brother. If you come to worship, that would be okay. You can't take the Lord's Supper. That would not be okay. There's also some problems with that way of thinking. Does the Lord Jesus not call you to the table if you're one of his children? Have a right to it? Does he not call you to it? Doesn't he say about that element of worship like he does the other elements? Do this. Well, he actually does say, do this in remembrance of me. But an even greater problem with that way of thinking is that Jesus won't allow us to just limit it to one part of worship. Jesus says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, then leave your gift. Jesus is talking about worship as a whole. Worship as a whole is in his sights. We cannot, even though it might seem like a good compromise to be in attendance at worship, and yet to present ourselves for one part of worship, we can't get around the force of what Jesus is saying. John Flavel is taking up this question in one of his little tracks, a conference between a pastor and a, and a doubting member. The doubting member is wondering whether he, should, he or she should take the Lord's Supper, uh, come to worship, but not take the Lord's Supper because he has concerns and conviction of sin. And John Flavel reminds him, look, if you can come to worship, there are also elements in the worship. You'll be sitting under, and if you're unworthy to come to the table, you're unworthy to come to those elements. This is how he says it. If this be a good reason to abstain from this ordinance for fear of performing it in an undue manner, then a wicked man may as well lay aside all other duties as prayer, hearing, and reading the word of God for fear of the unworthy use of them. Since Scripture says that the prayer of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, and Christ says, Take heed how you hear 
And the apostle says that those who will not believe the gospel, it is the savor of death to them. That is, it is deadly and damnable to such persons. Now, there is as much reason, Flavel says, for men to give up praying or attending the word of God as not to receive the sacrament. When we then weigh these things, we realize that the people of God are called to worship him. They're called to be there. They're called to engage themselves in worship. It's a disobedience not to do that, and yet we're caught on the other side, other end of the pliers, if you will, by these words of our Lord. Do you have an offering? Do you remember someone has something against you, then you leave. What are we to make of this? What is the correct solution? Well, let me seek to give you three observations that are temporal in nature. They are before worship comes, in the act of worship, and they're after worship. To seek pastorally to guide you in that very real case in which Sunday comes and you're still not altogether resolved with a brother. First of all, before we go any further, we need to have cleared our minds what the rule is. The rule is, don't let the Sabbath come around on your conflict. I'm putting it in a way that's parallel to that teaching of the Scripture. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. We can add to that, don't let the Sabbath come around on your conflict. Now, it's not just corporate worship that is a problem if you're unresolved in an issue with your brother. It would also be private worship. You shouldn't ever feel easy or rest easy. It's, it's not Sunday yet. I've got, I've got plenty of time. But I, I'm not saying that. I am saying that in a unique way, in corporate worship, this question arises. Are you right with your brethren? You're gathering with them. Are you right with them? And brothers and sisters, I want us to recognize that all that we've been saying about how to resolve conflict is something that has built into it a certain accountability structure in your life. And that is that Sunday's coming. The Lord's Day is coming. You're going to be meeting with your brothers and sisters, and they're going to be joining with you in worship and joining with you in the Lord's Supper. And they're going to be expressing in all those things the oneness the family of God. Sunday's coming. So you may not be angry and the sun may have gone down, but if the conflict's not resolved, you and I ought especially to think in terms of Sunday coming. Does this weigh in your conscience? Are you finding yourself convicted at some point during the week? I, I really need to say something. Then at least make a start at it before you bring your gift to the altar, as it were. There's a weekly deadline, if you will. You and I ought to think ourselves under. And that ought to give to us great motivation. It's not artificial. It's not arbitrary. It's not just a seven-day uh, thing pulled out of the air. No, it's the time that you will be going with your brethren to meet with God. And he wants to hear one, a congregation who's one in their praise and in their worship at all costs. Seek to be reconciled, brothers and sisters, by the time you drive up on a Sunday morning.
at all costs. Begin to think this way. Begin to recognize that God is calling you to worship. And that is another way of saying he's calling you to have all of your accounts balanced with your brothers and sisters. They may be living with you. They may be working with you. They may be still just a phone call away. They may be a country away. You reconcile with your brothers before you come. That's the first thing we have to say about the correct solution. But let's suppose that you come to worship and you're sitting there in your pew. If you will, in the language of our Lord Jesus, you've got your gift and the altar is right there. And you begin to realize, I'm not right with my brother. What should I do? I'm not right with him. I, you, you, perhaps it's as you begin to sing, and the hymns and psalms have this way of assuming things about the people of God, and you realize, it's not... It's not me. I'm saying this, and this psalm or hymn assumes about me certain things that aren't true. And you begin to be convicted of your sin. You recognize that you need to confess some sins to God, and you recognize you need to confess some sins to your brother, your sister. I want to say to you that if the conviction of sin, this is the second thing, the correct solution. If the conviction of sin comes upon you in worship, express your repentance through that worship. Express your repentance through that worship. Now, in order to make that square with Matthew 5, we need to look carefully at this passage. And I need to make an observation to you. I believe that we could get gripped by the principle of this passage, but also get sidetracked by a too literal following of it. Because as I made the remark to you before, this is an example of Jesus speaking with what we call hyperbole. He's speaking with the express intent of stating something more strongly than he intends or that he means more strongly than he's even possible in order to make his point. Now, as you have questions perhaps pop up in your mind, let me remind you, this is Jesus' M.O. This is the way he speaks frequently. We have some rather radical examples of that, like cutting off your hand in order to keep a more pure life. And we as elders would would seek quickly to intervene. If someone said, Jesus commanded it, and I'm going to do it. We quickly seek to intervene. We'd have a little bit of a, a job to do, saying Jesus is not speaking literally. He's using a rhetorical form, hyperbole, in order to get us to wake up and listen to what he's saying. Now, that, that you might say, that's obvious, Pastor. Well, how about this one? Uh, someone needs something to wear and he asks for your cloak give him your tunic also it's a flat out imperative ask for your cloak give him your tunic now there's nothing impossible about that there's nothing inherently irrational about that do you do that would you do that does the church do that as a rule if we were every time to respond to someone's request or to sense of need by giving 
everything we had, all our clothes, would that be in fact consistent with other principles of Scripture? Well, we, we don't live that way, and we've rightly concluded once again, there goes Jesus again. He's making us go, what? What are you saying? Huh? Kind of like turning the other cheek. Friend, well, not your friend, presumably your enemy, strikes you on the cheek. And what does he want to get across? Here, here's, what's, here's what Jesus is doing. He's wanting to say, look, I don't want anyone in my family following me who's so hot-headed that they'll return evil with evil. I want them to return good for evil. And so he says, you get struck on the right cheek, you take it. Swallow the blood. Give them your other cheek. Now, there are those who've built a whole philosophy of pacifism on that text. And what they've done is fail to see Jesus is seeking to speak in a very radical, confrontational, meddlesome, in-your-face, stop-you-and-make-you-think way. But he fully expects you not to take, in its most literal fashion, what he's saying. You could multiply those examples. Swear not at all. You all broke that commandment just tonight by taking vows. Well, he's not speaking, literally speaking hyperbolically. How do I know that about this passage? Well, brothers and sisters, we know that about this passage because what Jesus describes taking place is actually literally impossible. Where is Jesus speaking? Well, he's speaking by the Sea of Galilee. Where is Galilee? Galilee is in the north. It's several days' uh, journey from Galilee to the place where people leave their gifts. That is Jerusalem, the temple. Jesus says, if, and he's speaking to Galileans who've made the trip, they know what it's like. He says, you've got a gift. Gift would be typically some animal. You've got a gift, you're going to leave it at the altar, and you're going to go leave it at the altar. He doesn't just say, take it with leave it at the altar. You go and be reconciled, and then you come back and offer your gift. Well, we're talking about several days intervening between that gift being left, reconciliation being made. And come, I think people would immediately recognize, you know, they don't have, they don't have room on that altar just to leave gifts laying around. Uh, they would recognize very quickly that Jesus, in all the hustle and bustle of, of Jerusalem and all the hustle and bustle of the temple, all the gifts coming and being sacrificed, they, they rec recognize immediately. Jesus is stating his point strongly that they might get the point that he's making. I'm taking the time to do this because I want no one to think that this pulpit will take Jesus lightly to explain what he, what, what, away what he's saying just because it might pinch. We're seeking to compare not only what Jesus is saying to the realities in which he's saying it, also to his other teachings and that of the Bible as a whole. So with that background, I say to you again, if conviction comes upon you in worship, then make that worship an expression of your repentance. You're sitting under the word of God preached, perhaps, and you find yourself convicted by the word, and the word is bringing to your mind the sins, perhaps, that you have against others, that you've uh, committed against others. Well, that's what it's supposed to do. You're supposed to be remembering those things, for example, under the preaching of the word. What do you do? Do you get up and leave right then and there? Do you stop? Do you refrain from taking the Lord's Supper right then and there? No. Have you been convicted of your sin? That's the best thing that's happened in that area of your life to date. You've been convicted of your sin. And what is worship? It is an expression, the multifaceted way, 
of repentance and faith. So you sit there and you pray, Father, forgive me. Lord, you know my heart. You know I, I want to change. You know that I'm still struggling with some things. But I'm not happy about that struggle. Lord, forgive me and help me to do what is right. And I assume that I'm talking to people who experience this. What does that do to your worship? Well, I'm not going to suggest that it makes it pleasant, more pleasant. But doesn't it, doesn't it enrich it? Doesn't it make it all of a sudden profound meaning and depth? All of a sudden, you really know why you're there. You really know what you need. You really know why God deserves the things you're saying to Him. You really know why you should be committed to obeying what He is saying to you in the Scriptures. What does God delight in? In worship, a broken and contrite spirit. Whenever you realize you've had such unconfessed sin, even you brought into the place of God, use the worship to be an expression of your repentance. You recognize that God spreads his table, the Lord's Supper, to those who are aware of their sins. And especially if you are aware of sins in the area of the unity of the body and your love for the brethren, then you need the forgiveness Christ offers at the table. And you need the sealing of that unity of the body that comes in the table. So you make your repentance an expression, or your worship an expression of repentance. And lastly, but about before Sunday comes, in the middle of worship on Sunday, lastly, you go in the strength of the means of grace and be reconciled to your brother. Now let me say it to you this way. You shouldn't have let Sunday come without that happening. But God dealt with you there in, in, in his worship. Sometimes perhaps he dealt with you right there at the table. And you're eating and drinking with your brothers and it comes to you there. He dealt with you. He's been merciful to you. Don't let another Sunday come before you're reconciled to your brother and your sister. He's given you that opportunity and he's given you the strength of those means of grace. So, when I conclude with couple of examples. You and your husband or wife have had a fight right before worship. Not sitting very easily with it as you come to church, but you're sitting there in worship and you become all the more convicted. Got some things left unsaid and undone with your spouse. Or this could be any family member, this illustration. What do you do? Do you take her or him by the hand and, and leave us? Go to the back? Well, if you had an opportunity to do that, I certainly wouldn't forbid it. If you're convicted of your sin, you're sitting beside your family member, then you say to that person, I'm sorry. 
and continue in worship seeking to express your repentance and go perhaps immediately after worship and be reconciled to that brother or sister who is your wife or husband. Anybody is sitting here tonight taking Lord's Supper, holding hands. I won't suspect that you just had a fight before church tonight. Or perhaps you've had an issue with a brother who's sitting there in the church with you and somehow there again, the elements of worship, everyone seems to convict you of your sin. He's there in the congregation. You have bad feelings towards him. You feel bad about your bad feelings. You're still struggling. You are still angry with him. But you're also convicted about your anger. That's how it is, isn't it? You get up in the middle of service and go and sit with him in the conference room. Well, I'm not going to rule that out. But must you? No, brother and sister, you must ask God to forgive you. You can do that anywhere you are. And you should express your repentance in your worship. And you should allow, like worship is intended to do, you should allow the resolve to be reconciled, that brother, to build in your heart as you worship. Allow the strength of that to help you as you go to him. When the elements of the Lord's Supper come around, may I suggest that if it's Tom or Dick or Harry or whoever it is that you've offended, you take that particular Lord's Supper to think about, to pray about, eventually to enjoy the fact that you are one with that brother in Christ. You and he are drinking and eating the same body and blood by faith. Allow the table to be a means of breaking you and remaking you and sending you to him to be reconciled with him. Is there ever a time, is there ever a time a man or woman, boy or girl, should say, I I should not take the Lord's Supper today? Well, yes. We say something about that every time we come to the table. You're living willfully and impenitently in any sin. Now, what kind of person is doing that? person with a hard heart, person whose life is beginning to show divergence from its profession. Usually those, usually those who are most concerned about whether they should take the Lord's Supper have the least reason to be concerned. It's usually those who don't care about the issue, who are not worried about whether they should come. And the very ones that the Apostle Paul would warn to do repentance before they come. Brothers and sisters, I would like to think that you and I will be able in the future days, with all the knowledge we have now from the Scriptures, about how to make peace with your brothers, to be right with your brother every time you assemble. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't be right to assume that. Here's how we should act. I have to lay out to you. Here's how we should act. Make sure that in your mind, it's your priority do anything that's necessary to be right with your brothers before Sunday comes. You're convicted of sin and worship. Make your worship an expression of your repentance and go in the strength of those means of grace and be reconciled. We are going to come to Lord's Supper tonight and to practice to take a few minutes and to
seek to prepare our hearts, confess sin if we need to, before we come to the table, so that we might come to the table with thankfulness, with repentance and faith, and with joy, the symbol that God has given to us of his own provision of forgiveness. Let's take some moments to pray quietly and ask the elders to come.